Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Italian Wine Podcast, as Wine to Wine 2020 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions chosen to highlight key themes and ideas and recorded during the two-day event held on November 23rd and 24th, 2020. Wine to Wine 2020 represented the first ever fully digital edition of the Business to Business Forum. Visit winetowine.net and make sure to attend future editions of Wine to Wine Business Forum. Hello and welcome everybody to this morning's session. I'm absolutely delighted to be back at Wine to Wine um, back in Verona, if only virtually. Uh, those of you who um, know myself and Jeannie know that we're based here in Hong Kong um, and that Hong Kong, as well as mainland China, are known for being fine wine hubs. And our collectors are known worldwide for the prodigiousness of their collections um, and their interest in fine wine. Now, I understand that over the course of this year, uh, Jeannie, you've been working on some research to try to understand how the conditions in this rather unusual year for all of us have impacted fine wine collectors' attitudes um, to wine. So maybe if you would like to share some background on your research. Yes. So thank you, Sarah. Um, and thank you, Wine to Wine, for having me. Uh, I just wanted to give a little background on the research. It's not specifically about COVID or this particular situation. Uh, I've been working on this uh, PhD. Uh, it's a dissertation um, for the past three years. Uh, it, the, the subject is really about um, Chinese fine wine consumers with wines. And uh, within that context, what I've looked at recently are how their relationship and their purchasing buying patterns change when there are challenges. So, for example, um, one would be this uh, very unique COVID situation. The other would be uh, prevalence of a, uh, a lot of a proliferation of a lot of counterfeits of a specific wine brand, for example. So what are the reactions? And there have been some I've got some preliminary conclusions at the moment because uh, the amount of data is so huge. Um, I've, I've interviewed one-on-one um, -on -one about 32 fine wine collectors, uh, all of them by either in person or by video, and uh, their conversation is uh, is being analyzed and transcribed word for word. Um, and so that's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of um, of transcriptions that you need to analyze and study. So I do have some preliminary conclusions. Yeah. So if you can touch on some of the key findings that might be of interest for our audience at Wine to Wine, knowing that, that many people will have an interest, um, particularly in Italian wine. We talked about this a little bit, but whatever you're able to share at this point. Great. So Right now, from what uh, I've been able to conclude with uh, these interviews is that overall, I would say the consumers' relationships with, uh, with the wines that they like to purchase, that they purchase regularly, whatever that may be, is quite strong. And in fact, a lot of um, challenges that you think might, might um, I don't know, dissuade a, a, let's say, a brand owner's um, purchase of Louis Vuitton because there are so many fakes in the market doesn't work in the same way with wine. So in fact, um, people are quite loyal 
the relationship that they have with specific wines they enjoy, specific regions or styles is so strong that it takes multiple disappointing experiences for people to really say, okay, I'm cutting my ties or relationship with this wine and this or this region or this particular brand. So one of the things that I realized is that once you have a wine lover who has committed to purchasing and, and you know, building quite a cellar. So one of the criteria for my research was that uh, they had a you know, personal collection of at least 1,500 bottles, which is, you know, more than you would have if you were just a, a casual collector. And you had to have been interested in wine for at least 10 years. So and a third of these were uh, women. A third of the interviewees were also from mainland China, Beijing and Shanghai specifically. So there, 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 there are representative uh, wine lovers from not just Hong Kong. So uh, having said that, I think a lot of how to understand or analyze how people might purchase or change their buying patterns has to do a lot with the social circumstances, uh, whether there's strict quarantine or whether it's more lax as in mainland China over the last several months has been very open and people in Beijing and Shanghai have felt very safe going out, dining, socializing. It's almost back to normal. Whereas, uh, as you know, Sarah, here in Hong Kong, we have our fourth wave and it seems as though everything's now you know, uh, being constricted and we don't know how long that's going to last. So during these times, I think when you're buying wines for social occasions, it's very different for wines that you buy for personal consumption. So those are uh, sort of two broad separations of of purchasing. And I would say that um, because the social element in cities like Hong Kong are being restricted, most of the wines is for personal consumption. And the wines for personal consumption in general have a very different price point, a very different purpose uh, because they fulfill different needs. So I, I would say that uh, in for Hong Kong, I think price points are coming down. Uh, in China at the moment, they have rem- they've got they've been sort of buoyant. There's a kind of you know post COVID quarantine giddiness about not having to be in quarantine anymore, and there is a lot of socializing having to make up for the times when when people were really worried. So I'm sure we'll see that too once we get through the fourth wave. So a lot of it is very cyclical and it's it's very social political, you know, virus and situational driven. So I guess this revenge spending that we're all hoping for around the world is genuinely something that that we're seeing happen in China. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I I do think so. So you can see um, that a lot of uh, brands, um, you know, I'm talking about more fashion brands now, have reported really high sales, online sales, but also uh, through their retail shops. And that usually happens right after a certain quarantine wave because people are very happy to be out. They want to be out spending. They want to be buying and they want to be socializing. They've missed seeing people. They missed dining out. So I think that we're going to have to look at this as a very long term, a longer term period. So not just three months or six months, but a year or two, we can look back and say, oh, here was the average, here were the patterns. And because we're right in the middle of it, we can only really see a kind of a short sighted view. But uh, in Hong Kong, what is very interesting is that um, 
people who are buying for themselves because it's a different type of wine. They're more experimental. They're willing to take risks because in a social situation, I think uh, risk management plays a really important role in what you choose because it, it, it is about potentially giving face or honoring someone or respecting somebody or, or you know, meeting a certain theme. But if it's just for you, uh, I think people are willing to experiment and try new things. Does that include looking at wines that are maybe of a lower price point? Because my experience, um, and I'm sure you've found similar, is that um, maybe even more so in mainland China than here, there is an expectation that the wine that you bring to dinner is of a certain price point and bringing people a value for money wine, if it falls below that threshold, might even be perceived as offensive, right? And an insufficient sign of, of respect for the host. Um, so are you finding that people's experimental tendencies when they're buying for themselves extends to maybe buying more value for money wines? Absolutely, Sarah. I think you, 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 you got it. You hit it right on the head because I, you see now, even in quarantine, when we have, for example, right now, we can only meet four people at a time, right? In, in any, um, outside dining venue. And so, uh, who you are going to expose yourself to are going to be what you call safe people that you whose travel history you know who you you know you know are vigilant and careful and so with those I'm assuming are your good friends and so they're more of an extension of what you would drink and, and you would feel a little more comfortable saying hey you know I found something that's um, really good value it's not that I'm disrespecting you let's just be open-minded and adventurous so people are trying uh, more regions more styles more price points and in general I think um uh, from from my initial analysis, uh, the wines that are for social occasions and social can be personal friends or it could be business, right? Uh, they tend to be more of the collectible, well-known brands, you know, wines that people would recognize, brands, names that people would um, appreciate and understand. Whereas uh, for themselves, uh, they are happy to say, you know, if you are recommending a, a new producer from Sicily or, you know, from uh, even a traditional region like Tuscany, but it's a, you know, new winemaker, new vineyard, you know, I think a lot of people would be open to it. I think the challenge now is how to reach those people and to, to pique their interest because there are a lot of, um, a lot of people, uh, I think, sharing information online, you know, this uh, conference is one of them doing these virtual, very, you know, informative, educational uh, uh, talks and seminars. So there is a plethora of information out there. And so how do you reach the people who really are genuinely interested? I think that is the real challenge. Definitely. And I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's easier for, for producers to, to maintain contact with particularly the people they already know. They're, they're loyal consumers in different markets, but the competition is much fiercer because it's not uh, down to who is willing to make the trip. So talking about price points just a little bit so that everybody in the room can understand, when we did, did you find that there was any particular threshold above which people um, felt more comfortable bringing the wines, using them for social occasions versus 
um, what we were talking about, these sort of personal or safe people type gatherings? Yeah, I think there there were, I wouldn't say everyone had the same price point, but the price point that was most repeated, and it seemed as though most people were using US dollars instead of euros, but around 50 dollars seemed a comfortable price point. Uh, so that would be about what, 40, 45 euros or something per bottle. They felt comfortable uh, taking risks, experimenting, trying new uh, producers or regions. And then for social occasions, a lot of it really depended on the circles because most of the uh, wine lovers I spoke to, they were involved in anywhere between five to 12 different wine circles. Mm-hmm. So all of those groups and circles had a slightly different focus. So there were quite a few that said there was one circle that only drank Burgundy, for example. <laughs> I mean, that's the only one. one. <laughs> so um, I think I, I think it really depends. It's a it's it's a complex kind of layered relationship. But um, I think the the I felt it was very I felt very positive after having done all the interviews about the future of a fine wine because you realize that um, in order to really be a collector that has more than a thousand bottles, right? First, you have to do inventory management. You have to take the time to source them. And if the wines are above, let's say, you know, 50 or 100 euros, you're actually doing some research. So probably you're learning along the way. So there's so much involvement in having a wine collection, so to speak, that once you're in, you're really in it for life. There wasn't one person who didn't think that wine was a a, a really long-term relationship that they would only part with if there was some health issue or some very serious personal issue involved. So I think I think that, you know, unlike a lot of hobbies where, I don't know, uh, wakeboarding or, or something in Hong Kong that's really popular at the moment, they come in uh, waves and trends. Uh, and we see that in spirits as well. You see that with at one point with vodka and gin and, you know, rum and tequila. And they kind of come in ebb and tide, you know, that flow. But it seems like with the with the wine collectors, there's just so much time involvement mm-hmm. that you you've invested and you've put in that it, it you know, um, it really pulls you in and you become wine becomes a part of your life. In fact, the the adjective I heard most often is that wine is is my friend, companion. When you're in quarantine, it's a friend when I'm doing work. It's a friend when I want to relax. And uh, one female um, wine uh, wine lover said to me, these wines are my boyfriends. And it doesn't talk back. It does. And I can choose between different ones every night. <laughs> so very a very deep a deep um, and lasting relationship. I mean, I guess that there's a slight obviously in the in the group that you're interviewing, right? Because they're people who've reached that 1500 bottle threshold at least. That these are people who've really dedicated themselves. Lately, I've found um, for so as um, as wine editor for Asia Tatler, I'm I'm often talking to an audience who are luxury consumers, but not necessarily wine collectors. And I think there's a little bit of interest now among people who like the finer things in life in general in starting to become wine collectors. But it's very intimidating, I think, because you see these people with these 1500 bottle 
um, collections. Did, did you talk much to your collectors about how they first got started? Yes, that was actually the very first question. And even though most of them have been involved in wine uh, for at least 10 years, I would say the average age in mainland China of the, of the nine that I interviewed was younger, more in their late 40s and early 50s uh, you know, versus Hong Kong. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's been the figure for, uh, for a, a lot of wine surveys. And um, I think that a lot of it has to do with where you are in your wine experience uh, cycle. So uh, for those who are still exploring and they find, you know, magical wines when they when they try their very first, uh, you know, let's say an incredible Barolo that they've never had before, suddenly their eyes open up. That sort of, you know, aha moments are still happening. Whereas those who've been buying and collecting wines for, let's say, 40, 50 years, it happens seldom because they've had that already. And once you have that, you can't, it's, you know, you, you can't exactly replicate that first time experience and the impact of that experience. But um, I, I did think that there was uh, quite a quite a difference between, um, you know, people who were, I would say, more adventurous, experimental, open-minded. And that had to do not with not so much with even the location of where you are, but uh, more to do with uh, what stage you're in, in that that wine cycle. And there were a handful, but not many, who were constantly exploring. Like, you know, someone who's been buying and drinking wines for 40 years, and they're still looking for new regions, new wines, you know, what's the next big thing? Uh, But that was actually uh, rare. That was not the norm. The norm was to go into cycles and explore different regions and then come back to what you loved before and then rediscover them all over again. And, and um, you know, the, I think the relationship had to do with where you are on that, on that wine cycle. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned when we spoke before that there were not that many people who were seriously collecting Italian wine. And I, I, know, I know you were a little bit reluctant to draw any conclusions, given that it was a fairly small number. But um, maybe just anecdotally, were there any um, was there any indication you got of how it was that they had started um, with collecting Italian wine specifically? Well, I, I was trying to analyze each person's motives for buying wines and for consuming wines. And of course, motivations are really complex is just not one or two. But if you could broadly categorize them as personal, like your own personal happiness, joy, satisfaction, and the other being social. Right. Social for others, for uh, for your social circle groups or communities, um, business or what have you. Right. I would say that most people in China were buying for social occasions and more and more people who've been collecting longer are buying for themselves and limiting their social circle. So it's actually in sync with with their own personal palettes. So when you're buying for social circles, especially in China, I think that, you know, we we all know that the French wines, especially at the collector's level, have dominated the marketplace. And for a long time, um, I think the the Chinese really, mainland Chinese uh, wine lovers equated fine wine with Bordeaux, for example. And of course, 
now Champagne, Burgundy, and lots of other regions have come into the picture. But and and of course, and among the thirty-two, I would say there were at least half a dozen who were really serious, uh, seriously um, a, a fan of Italian wines. But they said they don't buy that much because you need a social occasion to share them. So they buy enough for them to enjoy themselves, but they don't buy it for the social occasions. Because if you break down the majority of people and when they drink, right, the context, um, the environment, and uh, what that wine they've purchased is being used for, the majority, the vast majority, some even up to 80, 90 percent, uh, use the wines they have in their collection for social occasion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them say, um, the, especially the ones who are becoming a, a little bit more, a little bit older, are saying that they want to reduce wine consumption mm-hmm. and dining out uh, on average for whether you're living in Shanghai or Hong Kong was three to four times a night, uh, three to four nights per week, yeah. which is more than... Right. Um, the, I, I think it's it's that means that majority of nights and dinners you're going out and most of those times it's with wine. So at home, they're trying to discipline themselves and be healthier by not drinking wine. I think it's it really has more to do with the context than with the Italian wines themselves. Fair enough. What what about from an investment perspective? Right. Because you sort of talked about how people are using wine in terms of consuming it. But there's definitely, and at least in my sort of experience, obviously I haven't done this, the formal research that you have, but the, the kind of wine circles that I'm around, there's definitely an interest in wine as a financial asset. Interestingly, I mean, if you look at the live X performance of Piemonte recently, it's been up there with Burgundy. So is that something that people are thinking about or it's just, it's still not really on the radar, even from that perspective? Yeah, well, I think... You know, we Asians and especially Chinese uh, are looking for value. Um, and I, I would say that very few people in, you know, among the people I spoke to really looked at wine as purely an investment. Mm. If it happens to be an investment uh, and they would like it to be, of course, because it always feels good to have wines that they bought for, let's say, 100 euros suddenly go up to three or 400 euros. So it's the feel good factor more than, oh, I'm going to make a business out of it. I can quit my day job and and just trade wines for a living. There's no such um, illusion in their minds. So why is the investment factor? Maybe it's important for funds. Maybe it's important for um, certain companies, I think, that try to lure or attract people uh, to buy. I, you know, usually blue chip uh, Bordeaux and, 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 you know, have them traded and so forth. But, you know, clearly with the amount of the quantity uh, that you produce from, you know, whether it's uh, Piedmont or Burgundy or any of these regions, it's really not enough to make a business. And it's not enough for any of them to say, I'm going to justify, you know, um, my uh, time spent on looking at all these wines and tasting them uh, so that I can make money from it. So I think it's really that uh, Chinese, uh, and especially the wealthy, they, they want to buy smart. They want to feel good that they bought this at a certain price and now it's worth so much. And, you know, um, uh, and, and oh, how smart am I have to have bought it when it was so inexpensive and, and unknown? So it, I, I didn't meet one person who thought that 
this uh, wine collection was going to be there even a, a minor source of income at all. And if they said, oh, if they end up selling it, yes, I probably have too much because purchasing and buying and collecting is almost a compulsion and it can become addictive, even if you already have 10,000 bottles. And a lot of these uh, collectors did, but they still love to buy because they wanted to follow the wines. And it was much more a matter of buying smart and not overpaying and not feeling like a fool because uh, you bought the the 2010s on Premier from Bordeaux and now uh, in bottle there, uh, you could have bought them so much cheaper, right? Because then you would look stupid. So I think it's not so much um, the investment wasn't really the the draw or the big factor from what I could see. So I, I don't think using that as an argument to say, oh, look at Italian wines or look at Spanish wines. Haven't they gone up so much in Bordeaux index? I don't think it's a strong enough argument for real wine lovers um, and the collectors who are really having long-term relationships with these wines to say, oh yeah, buy that wine just for that reason. Um, so switching gears just quickly to take, we have a couple of questions from the audience. Um, so one is around um, what are the most sought after wines and who is influencing these trends? Mm, oh, that's that's a very good question. So the sought after wines, uh, nearly everyone I spoke to was Burgundy as a region, as a category that we can see from just, you know, auction results. For example, all the auction houses are saying their their, their numbers are, are and profits are, are being um, held up by Burgund- this demand for Burgundy. Um, and who is influencing them? It's very interesting now because I'm not sure there is one Burgundy critic like there was, uh, uh, you know, for Bordeaux with Parker that had a huge influence. I think the market almost knows its own value. A lot of it has to do with um, demand and supply. So obviously the smaller the supply, the smaller the vineyard, all the Grand crews that you can imagine from Burgundy are just, I mean, they're minuscule. So of course, and if, and if everyone is um, searching for those wines, then yes, uh, the prices are inevitably going to be going up. I think the major influence are auction houses and also the domains themselves who are now selling directly to auction or uh, releasing them directly to importers, either aged or, um, uh, you know, like uh, like Loire has been doing for many years, only releasing the new vintages and tiny portions and then taking their time to release uh, the wines that they think are ready. So um, I think it's less critics and even you know, wine, uh, wine publications and ratings anymore as it is kind of the efficiency of the market and the demand by both uh, collect, really by collectors. I think it's collector driven and also uh, with the mechanism of online systems and, and um, uh, availability and pricing with auctions and select importers. Yeah, that links in nicely with one of the questions we've gotten from the audience about online auctions and how what role those have played during the pandemic. Um, the collectors you spoke to, were they comfortable with this shift to online with auctions or were they still, mm-hmm. still oh. 
describing sort of the in-person presence? No, I think the in-person presence uh, with the pandemic and the and the um, risks factor risk factors involved, they're feeling more and more comfortable buying and going online, both for auctions, but even for if you if if I were a wine importer, I would invest all my money on uh, creating a, a platform where you can easily search and buy wines with just one click, right? Because um, that's totally an investment I think uh, worth making, and um, it's not. I don't, and I don't think it's it's going to be just during this pandemic. I think it's going to be lingering and lasting. And if you're trying to bring in the next generation. Uh, whether it's the millennials or the Gen Z, right? They're even more comfortable buying everything and anything online. So I think we're going to have to move toward that platform. Uh, and uh, the the auctions, frankly, in Hong Kong over the last several years have been this this huge buckus and uh, kind of a you know, a social occasion and event. And if those are no longer safe, then of course, if you know what you want to buy, uh, it makes, it makes sense that these online sales and, um, and auctions are, are going to continue to do well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. My, um, so I, I did my research paper for the MW on online wine consumption in China and it was a growing, you know, my research was mainly done sort of 2016 mm-hmm. and it growing then and I, I think this is only accelerated um that, that trend definitely um just a final one before we wrap up I guess um personal one for you Jeannie what university are you doing your PhD at? <laughs> well the only one that has a great F&B and wine department which is the Hong Kong Polytechnic University uh they have the number one school uh in Asia called the School of Hotel and Tourism Management and Sarah you very kindly taught there as well and we have a uh a very popular program, master's degree program called International Wine Management, which um, is now, uh, you know, doing uh, very well and into its fifth year. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm teaching at the university. I'm also doing my PhD there as well. Fantastic. All right. Thanks. I think we are uh, are out of time. <laughs> Viva Korean DNA. Yes, we did that. <laughs> Proud to have opened the session today. Um, fantastic. All right. Thank you, Jeannie. Um, I think that that's all we have time for today. And thank you, everyone, for your attention. Have a wonderful rest of the day at Wine to Wine. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, chin chin.